listening to The Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Big Album Show with me, Paul. And me, Dan. On this podcast, we go back to 1998 to Camarama, the terrific second album from Picture House. Now, Picture House are a powerhouse of a band whose albums have featured some of the best, the most hummable, the most unashamedly positive and simply most endearing songs in the Irish song playbook. They've been a part of my life for 25 years now. Um, and we're absolutely to be delighted to be joined this on this podcast by Dave Brown. Very well, welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Very well. It really is yeah. great to have you on the show. Um, I suppose take us back, Dave, right back to the beginning of Picture House and tell us how it all came about. How did it all start? Well, well, I was in, I had a band, you know, when we were kids called Hidden Faces and um they threw me out of the band eventually because um, it's always a good move to get rid of the lead singer and the songwriter. That, that always really helps, <laughs> you know. And then I decided, right, I'll start. So two weeks later, I had another EP out. I used to make EPs on tapes because I was always very conscious of having things recorded and released. And we went into Sun Studios and the brilliant Terry Hackett. And, we, we, you know, we'd have eight, nine, nine songs and we'd put them together on these t- cassette tapes. And um, there was a friend of mine's father said, oh, I'm after sending your tape to a record company and I just called you Picture House. And I went, oh, OK, why, why is that? And he, he said, well, because when I listen to your music, I see pictures and house is a very in word at the moment. <laughs> so I thought, OK, that'll do. That's as good a name as any. Thanks, buddy. And um, so that's kind of where the name came from. And we just started playing. We played, played everywhere that would have us. We, we, we rehearsed all the time. It was our full time job, even though it wasn't a job because we didn't get paid. And, uh, you know, we were all like that old story of years ago. You, you were allowed to be on the dole and be in a band back then. And um, we got signed then to eventually got signed to London Records in 1991, um, which was Polygram. And that iteration of the band was signed to them for about three or four years. But, you know, they had the fine young cannibals and they had kind of very cool London bands. And we weren't that, you know, we you kind of wonder why they signed us in the first place. So that kind of fell apart with them. But we were, you know, anxious to keep, or, you know, determined, should I say, to keep going. And then um, really, uh, Donkey joined the band then around 1994, 95 thing. He, he, we met him through a mutual producer. Um, he said, look, there's a great singer-songwriter guy I know from Stoke, and he, he you know, doesn't have a band. And we were saying, well, we've no guitar player, and we wanted to you know get somebody in so donkey came and uh joined the band and we all lived in the same house together myself and jeff and and angus did and jeff's the keyboard player and, and angus was the bass player and we've been kind of th- we went through the whole thing the three of us together we were in the band from the beginning and um, but like it was mad you know we used to stand there and then our first album we we, we i was working with pete lenister whom i met through Ari and Arman in London Records before we were dropped from them. And I kept working with him, Pete, and we wrote somebody somewhere. And, you know, all the songs that are that you'd know, World and His Dog and um, Worldwide TV, the list is endless, Fear of Flying, all of those songs. And um, so uh, Pete, you know, was got a lovely man called Neil Brockbank as a tape up. And we all got together and we saved up our money and we recorded our first album. Chinebox, 
And of course, that had a load of radio songs on it because we we had told radio when we met them. We said, well, they'll give you a new song every three months. No, that was our plan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we did. D- you know? Dave, when you were when you were recording Shine Box, you know, which has incredible songs on it. Were you, did you feel that you were doing something very special? Did you know what was coming down the track in terms of your success? Or were you kind of just hoping for the best? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We had the we had an EP out before that, I should have mm. said, um, which had four songs on it, which we recorded at our back garden in this house we were living in together. Um, I mean, I even remember going up to the... Um, the dull guy who rang us one day, you know, and Angus comes in and goes, game's up, lads, game's up. Because in a band, <laughs> you're always waiting for that moment when you're rumbled, you know. So he goes, would you ever beat it? Go back to the Duns. And you're like, <laughs> so he said, we're rumbled and went up to the dull. And I goes, what's going on, lads? You know, just tell us what's going on. And he's like, well, you know, we're in a band. And we were, we were signed to Polygram and now we're working on this. And he says, right, just tell us, that's grand. We put you on the back to work scheme and then we'll pay you graduations of 175 50 and 25% over the next four years. So we didn't have to sign on again. Yeah. And that worked out great for us because it gave us freedom to kind of, we were okay, you know? Um, so we made that first EP. Yeah, no, but to answer your question, we were, um, we were always going there. That's where we were always going. We just had to get there. And uh, that's the kind of determination you need. So when we did our first gig with Bon Jovi, um, which we won, we won the competition with 104 to play the support Bon Jovi in the RDS. And there was 35,000 people at that. I mean, I was just walking on. I said, right, I'm home. That's it. That's it. This is where I wanted. This is where I was always supposed to be, you know. What, what did that, that feel re- like when you walked onto the stage and you saw this crowd of people in front of you? What did that feel like? Well, we were very well gigged, you see, at that point. We knew yeah. what we were doing. We were gigged. And we, you know, we, we were very tight. So the, the playing part wasn't an issue. And I just knew the, the bigger the crowd, the, the, you know, the easier the reaction is. Yeah. You know, and that works both ways. You can go to a gig. There's a sweet spot in a gig. You can kind of go to a gig and which is a washout that has 15 people at it, and you're never better. You you see, you play really well and you connect with the crowd. Then you can have a kind of a gig with a couple of hundred people at it. For some reason, it just it just doesn't work. And then 36,000 people, of course, like you can take out a small camera and say, right, would you guys all mind moving into the left a bit? And you guys and everybody laughs because it's ridiculous because there's just 35,000 people there. There's it. So when you say any you know sing along with us and thirty six thousand people do everybody feels that you know so it's a big event so for us i mean i you know i i could put my hand on heart and say the only anxiousness or nervousness you'd have is that something that the equipment wouldn't work that'd be kind of or i'd break a string or something but other than that it felt fantastic you know that was kind of as i said that's where we wanted to be um and that's that was kind of a vindication of all the years of the hard work that we'd done so um that's when it really started in Ireland for us. I think people really found out who we were on that gig. It's it's remarkable. Um, there's a couple of things there that you're saying that really interest me. I want to talk to you a bit, a bit more about the live band before we talk about the album. Um, but something you said there really sort of interested me. I've heard Tommy Tiernan saying something similar recently enough, and I've heard people in the theatre world talk about it as well, which is the idea that you're on the dole on a kind of a creative uh, journey. Um, you know, sorry if that sounds a little bit pompous now, but you know, you get what I'm saying, that, you you know, it allows you to express yourself, in your case, uh, be a singer-songwriter and, and develop the, the band. And um, that's probably 
simply not possible anymore. And that strikes me as a pity. Yeah, that's why I said back in the day you could do that kind of thing. I'm not yeah. sure whether you can now. That it means it has you to death and just have you. Yeah. Why aren't you working? Why aren't you working? And you know, I'm not sure. And as we have found out over the last two years, I mean, you know, it was a constant battle to even get the government to understand what positions yeah. do. You know, and that's the sad reality there. So um, I don't know whether they'd react the same way now as they did then. You know, yeah. it was a very, I guess Tommy was right. I mean, we were just free to to do that. Now, I'm sure there were lots of people on the inverted commas dole that were soul searching and being poets and all and nothing happened, that kind of thing. But for us, yeah. it was certainly a freedom to be, to have the ability to pay our bills and feed ourselves and be in a band. Yeah. I, and it gave I, us four years to do it. In fairness, I'd say after the four years would have been, come on now, lads. You know, I mean, I, I remember our rent announced guy saying to us, ah, the three amigos used to walk into us. Hey, how are you, Martin? Like, shout out to him, Martin. He was the nicest man you'd ever meet in your life. He was our welfare officer. He, the difference between him and the dole is that he would pay the rent allowance and the dole pay your, your money per week. So Martin goes, look, lads. And if I see any of you lads walking in here in Armani suits, I'm cutting off the rent, right? <laughs> that was kind of like his basis of, of, of where the benchmark was. And because uh, you know, we'd have to go and explain to him that we were on the late late that Saturday night, not to cut yeah. off our rent because the late late doesn't pay it. You know, yeah. and that he might think that we're famous and we've loads of money, but that's it's not it doesn't work that way. Yeah, you're, so. you're, yeah, you're throwing up so much stuff for, for us here, Dave, because yeah. so much material here to, to go into in terms of how artists and musicians are treated and valued. And, and you know, it's getting my, my blood is going here already. I'm getting excited. Yeah. But we get before we get to all that, I have a little story that I want to tell. I mean, Listen to the show and know that myself and Dan are famous for our hot takes. And one of my takes about Picture House is how terrific a live experience it is. Uh, I saw the band uh, three times in the 90s. I saw in the Rossnery Hotel, now an old person's home in Drada. I saw the band doing that big FM 104 show that you mentioned. Myself and Dan were both there. We didn't know each other then. Um, and I saw the band doing the New Year's Eve gig in Dublin in uh, 2000. Do you remember that, Dave, bringing in the new year? Yeah. yeah where, where was that? Where, where, where that, was, you... that was a big, huge outdoor gig down on the Keys oh, right. in Dublin. Okay. okay. Do you have any memories of that gig? I don't remember that one. Do you know, it <laughs> there, was, might, be very, there I, might be various reasons for that, though. I, I mean, I, I tell I, you, no, it was terrific because you... You, 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 the it was just such. I remember the, I remember the whole lineup. Uh, one, there was David Gray headlined, and there was the Africa Sound System and Keelan, loads of others. But to be honest with you, there was no performance like the Picture House performance. It was absolutely terrific and perfect. And one of the things I'm wondering about was, and we all know, we, well, those of us who are familiar with the band, we know the stories: the Bon Jovi tour, the Elton John, uh, the Corps, of course, um, and. Uh, you know how when you were doing those tours, I think that those bands started coming on a little bit later sometimes because you guys were, were doing such, you know, good shows and getting in so many people. Um, but it, did you get to that level because of this amount of experience in doing a hell of a lot of gigs and living together and practice over a long period of time? And is it, is it that kind of work that paid off that brought you to that level? Because I, I don't think you just arrive at those huge 30,000 outdoor gigs getting that kind of response. That doesn't happen overnight. No, we grew up in the blue light um, every Sunday and Tuesday for years. Uh, that's where we played. And we played t- twice a week there. And then we played in Malloy's in, in Dunleary. 
and we just had residencies and we just played all the time. I mean, it, right up to the, today, I still play Monday nights in town in Brussels every Monday night. I have done for 13 years and did but it, upstairs in Lily's before that for years because, you know, it just keeps everything playing fresh, you know. But but from the gig and yeah, we played in pubs and then we, you know, what's the name of the band? You see all that kind of thing. And and people would react to it, you know, we'd, they'd be like, for example, I would, you know, I remember one of the first nights he'd walk on to uh, Wembley Arena and there's 17,000 people or whatever, isn't there, that way. And then we'd get them singing during the first song, you know, somebody somewhere and big applause at the end. And I'd say immediately at that point, I bet you, th- you bet you thought we were going to be shite, didn't you? You know, <laughs> and everybody laughs because everybody knows that the support bands are shite. If you know what I'm saying, they were back yeah. then and a warm up act as it were. But like you say, we came out and we were like, well, wait, till they get a load of us. And what you alluded to there about the, the band's taking longer to come on is because we sold so many CDs in the break that the audience weren't back in the room yet. That's what used to happen. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we got a great reaction that way. But like, as you say, that came about from years of just gig and gig and gig. And if you're a band, just gig, 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 gig to nobody, gig to five people, gig to say, and forget about getting paid, you know, forget about all that for a while, because that, that, that's not going to get you there, you know, and haven't, you know, haven't said that. I mean, the pressures and the advantages are different for bands now. I mean, for us to go and record an album was a, a mare of a thing was done on two inch tape and it was edited with a blade, you know? And so you needed experts to do that kind of thing. You don't need that. Now you can all record your albums easier and produce them and, and arguably put them out on Spotify easier and all that kind of thing. Mm. But what it doesn't have is that kind of, you have to get it rightness of the whole thing. And the band has to kind of play it together and all of that kind of, so we were the end. We caught the end of that kind of recording process that had, been responsible for so many brilliant albums that came before it but yeah just a long-winded answer to your question is yeah it comes from playing you got to play all the time but dave were, were you um ever formally trained musically or did you play music as a child because when i because when i listen to your music i i hear really interesting structures and changes and so on that would suggest you absolutely know your music inside out you know or did that just come from playing well, yeah, and influences and each other, you know, mm. Pete and Donkey and I and uh, all the different things we brought to the table. And you realize later on in life sometimes that, oh, yeah, oh, right, that's where I got that from. Oh, yeah. And I nicked that from him. I must have got that from him. And, you know, and when you put all those different elements together, um, that's what makes a song unique. But no, no formal training. I was I was like, even my brother will tell you when we were kids, you know, we'd stand in the front room and the curtains would open and I'd see 30,000 people, you know. And he'd see a driveway. <laughs> They'd be like, why is he singing in the driveway? Why can't we just point? I'm like, no, man, curtains, crowds, come on. And uh, and and that kind of drive, I think, um, you know, lead, leads you wherever it's going to lead. I suppose what we, people would, would, would call it the universe or whatever now, or, you know, the secret or it, willing something to happen. You know, I know that um, people like... Uh, Jim Carrey say all the time that he manifested this thing to happen. And I suppose unbeknownst to myself, that's probably what I was doing all along as it didn't, it's going to happen. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. And, uh, but musically we, we learned a lot from each other and, and, and uh, always be prepared to do that too. You know, always learn from the people around you. You're never the best person in the room and the song is King. And that was one, one key element of our band that 
you know, the song was king and it fundamentally ruled the roost. Yeah. And it was more powerful than all of the rest of us, even put together. So, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's so interesting to, 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 to hear you put the, uh, the, the emphasis on that because for me, when I look back and I, when I remember, I remember Shinebox so well. We'll get on to Cameraman in, in a moment. and But I remembered it so well. And the, the two tracks for me, I still remember the first time I heard um, Heavenly Day. And I think I can still remember the first time I heard uh, Somebody Somewhere as well. And I think that's the kind of a power of a song, isn't it, really? If you can actually remember the first time you heard it. Yeah, that happened to me with Don't Dream It's Over. I remember exactly where I was sitting. And uh, that with, for, that's a crowded house song, by the way, mm. boys and girls. But I was stopped, stopped, stopped at the lights in Temple Oak and I heard this song and I thought, well, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I would be, you know, I would be lying if I if I said that we weren't aware of that, you know, that, that somebody somewhere when it went out there, you know, that it needs to have, you know, it's, it's our baby. It needs to have the shiniest coat I can afford to put on it. You know what I mean? It, you know, so that being that it needs to be catchy. It needs to get to the chorus quickly. It needs to engage the listener. It needs to have something to say and it needs to have riffs the music needs to be interesting so we were very much aware I, we weren't a, a pop band by accident in that regard we 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 knew what we were doing and that's why i said every three months because i knew we'd just write them that way you know and um, you know and that's not to say that other forms you know i'm not saying you know okay computer is like a fantastic work of art which it is and i'm, I'm just re-listening to it now recently and it's it's just fantastic but that's not what we were and that's what you picked up on when you when you'd say that you know before we came on you were saying about the um you know other bands be all hanging back and looking at the shoes and all of that kind of thing and we weren't you know we were like ha we're not shit we love, we love you yay and yeah, and that came from we did the same thing in Malloy's pub in in in, in Dunleary as we did in in the RDS. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, I I can remember it so well. I mean that 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 relationship between the fans and the band was so good that the positivity flowed both ways. Uh, yeah. And for me, the sound of Picture House is just this unashamedly positive, upbeat sound. And I found it again during the lockdown when I went back to Sunburst, which again, I mean. Is, is is just such a standout signature tune. So before we talk about Cameron and the album properly, can we talk about Sunburst? And it's the song, probably your best known song. Um, it's the song that, you know, is instantly hummable. Um, can you tell us about writing that song and how you came up with it? Well, Donkey came up with the, the initial idea. I remember I was, I think I was, where was I? I remember where I was when I sang the idea to somebody first, but I I uh, I can't remember where Donkey. I don't know where where I heard him sing it first, but he he was like and then I think uh, Pete Glenister did the it always it always not Glenos parts because they have all those complicated semi chord things that he does, you know the. And then, and then I did the what a day part, so yeah. that's how that comes together, you know. Um, that's my recollection of it. I'm not sure whether that's 100 percent correct, but it's roughly what happened with it. And then you know, once it's we we then we finished it, we routined it. And what routine means is when you're going to make an album, you put the band together with the producer and you routine the songs. You go through them. And now, what if we did a guitar solo here? And and that's the part you were saying, Dan, about the how you structured the songs in that or so we'd know that nah, it needs to lift here 
Mm. So we have what a day, what a day, what a day, you know, oh, well, here we go. And you'd follow that then off and then solos and all that. And so when you got to the studio, because back in the day, you were looking at the clock, you rented the studio by the hour. So Sunburst had to go down quickly. You couldn't, you couldn't be hanging around for weeks, tweaking this and tweaking that. We couldn't afford that. So, um, yeah, so we did that in the kitchen of the house we lived in, the three of us in, in Glenvara Park here, or not Glenvara Park, in Carrick, Carrick Lee here in Furhouse. And the three of us uh, lived there. So the boys arrived every day and we'd sit in there literally around the kitchen table, like something you'd seen the snapper. Yeah, like you know, a kitchen table is no big you know, it's not like any imagination needed. Just just think of the kitchen in the snapper and that's it. Somebody sitting over by the cooker, another fella has the feet up on the kitchen table and drums in the corner, but by the back door. And we routined it and, and it basically came together there and just hacked out the lyrics, made sure we were all happy with them. So by the time we went to the studio, it sounded the way it does, but the audience didn't like Sunburst when we played it first. So because they were a Shinebox audience and they, they liked somebody somewhere. And of course, this was a new song and we put it into the live set, which helped us to uh, learn it. And not, you know, it's outside of learning it. It's it soaked into our ether, you know what I mean? It becomes part of you. But it never got a great reaction from the, from the audience. It was only because it was a hit afterwards. The radio loved it. And because they played, played it so much. Um, Again, I'm not saying that's why it was a hit or why it wasn't, but that's the order in which it happened. And the audience weren't, weren't crazy about it when we first sang it. Interesting. Will we um, approach this uh, uh, looking at our, our favourite tracks off the album, Dan? I mean, we love that doing this part where we take our favourite tracks. Yeah. It's our highlight. Um, Dave, you have the honour, of course, going first. They're your songs. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm after doing now? After you just said that, I'm like, what feckin' songs are on that album? <laughs> well, if you I want, don't have if you leash in front of me. Myself, now, go first. I'm just low to go first. I, I, well, I, I, I think there's. I think it opens with you and I, doesn't it? Yeah. And then it has one in a million. Yeah. Uh, and maybe not in the correct order. It would have um, God Let It Go, Raining Stones, um, Sunburst. Loving the streets all the time in the world. And um, me, myself, and you. No? Mm-hmm. Is that yeah, right? It's on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that all of them? Only a friend. Only a friend. A thousand yeah. years of uh, thousand years of evolution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was my Elvis Costello song. That was, you know, thousand years. Supposed to be Elvis Costello singing, you know. Uh, and and Billy Joel actually put me onto that because he, you know. He used to write songs for other people, even though they were his songs in his head. He was writing them for Frankie Valley, and you know, oh, that, that's yeah. why some of his songs for the longest time and all that, you know, he's writing them for Frankie Valley and uh, you know, Innocent Man and stuff like that. So, I didn't again about the influence I was speaking about early on, I had no problem doing that. That was my Elvis Costello song, and if he sang it, it would sound like one of his, you know. And we wrote that about you know what was happening in the Catholic Church at the time. Um, Anyway, so that's probably one of my favorites to answer your question. So do, we, do, we, do I give you all three now or do we go one each, one each, one each? Or how does it work? We go one each, one each. It's, okay. it, yeah, we go one each. I, I, I really like you and I and, I. and I tell you what I like about it. I think there's a great sentimentality to it. And I like that about music. And I like, I like that feeling that it evokes in me. Um, so I, 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 lo- I really liked it at the time. And when I went back to it, listening to the tracks again, 
it, it just stuck with me and stayed with me. And I think there's a nice softness and a nice emotion in it. And I just, it, you know, and again, so instantly hummable, which I really like in the song as well. Yeah. yeah. You see, what do I do now then? Do I, do I, do I tell you what that sounds no, like? No, no, we, we, well, we go one each. We go, okay. there's, there's my Sorry, one there. Okay. Right, well, you, well, go ahead. Right, but go I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually say you and I as well as my first one, because I, when I am... Um, when when I first hear that song, the, the, the opening few bars of it remind me of a Pure Imagination from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, do you know? And I, I, I mean that in a really positive way. Oh, yeah. What a song. Yeah. It's, what a it's, song it's, to be yeah. 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 So, you know, the kind of the, the keys are very similar in Pure Imagination. At the, just the first line, and then it, ch- it changes. And then I hear, I love the, the, the guitar in it. It's actually... Like it starts as this really sweet, wistful song, and it is a kind of a sweet, wistful song as far as I can hear. But the the guitar in it's actually quite grungy towards the end, um, mm. which which I really like. And uh, it it then you have your key change, and then it finishes in kind of an ascending, grungy guitar uh, riff. I, I I like it as a I, I like it. It's definitely one of my top three. Yeah. And, well, that used to open the gigs. You know what I mean? It, it was the opener. It was kind of like hello. But I wrote that about smoking. That's what that song's about. Really? Yeah. There you are running through me. You and only you can soothe me. I can't deny it's bitter true. I'm addicted to my love of you. And every time I take you out, you fill up my fear and doubts, but I hold you closer than I should, as close as any killer could. Wow. I didn't see that coming at all. Did you, Dan? That is a killer, killer insight into a song there now. (laughs) Well, you see, here's the thing. That would be... That would be the the catalyst. That would be the thing that I'd say. Oh, I okay. Well, I know I understand how I feel about this particular thing, yeah. and that is ultimately the love. This love I have will someday kill me. Who knows? Yeah, maybe yeah. one day I'll see the light. Someday I might. Yeah. Right. Simple, but yeah. but again, of course, everybody else relates to it differently, and the song leaves you. And I think most any any artist would tell you this. After after a while, the song isn't it? it's everybody's now it's, it's the audiences and ours uh, or or nobody's as the case may be so listening back to it now it's i mean it's a beautiful sentiment to have for somebody you love isn't it i mean it's a beautiful love song and about lamentable love or you know like you say and it's all those things that it invokes but fundamentally that's what the idea from the song was about and then when you when you when i tell you that and you listen to the lyrics it's as i said that's why I'm saying, oh, do I tell you now? <laughs> You'll never, a bloody smoking, in it? Troll the album on the ground. What a pile of shit. Yeah, I made my missus to that fucking top. So you don't know, you know, you don't want to ruin it for anybody. But that's that was the initial um, inspiration for it. Wow. Uh, my, my next track would be um, probably, uh, and I had a bit of, I always have difficulty coming up with, with, with three tracks on, a, on an album that I really like, but I, I really like All the Time in the World. And for roughly the same reasons, the, um, I think there's great emotion in it. There's, there's great, there's great sentiment in it. And it just reminded me about being young. And I know this is going to sound corny and silly and people say, oh, look at your man. He's often they have podcast there going on, but like, it just reminded me of that sense of when you have young, when you're young and that it's permanent. 
that it's going to be like this forever. And now you're going to tell me something completely different. It's going to end up completely different in a second. But it, it just reminded me of, of, of just being young and feeling that you had all the time in the world. And, you know, when I went when I went back and, I, you know, of course, I look at the video and, the, you know, the clothes and everything. And, you know, I you guys, I look like you guys in the 90s, I, you know, those shirts and, and the jackets and everything. So it's very much... And it just brought back a lot of memories for me. And, you know, I, I remember hearing it on the radio at the time and on the album. And I just, yeah, no, just a really memorable track. And, you know, I think they've vocally, um, I just love the way you sing the chorus and the way it goes up high, you know, and we really, it's, you can really sing along to that and really get into it, you know. Um, so that was mine. What about you, Dan? What's your... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dreadful tonight. I'm going to go for the same one again. Now, I think we're going to differ on the next one, hopefully. But uh, here's my here's my weird hot take. I had the, the, the pure imagination hot take on the first one, right? Here's my weird hot take on this one. That's borderline probably offensive again. But when I hear the, uh, the, the, the verse, right? The keys remind me the, really subtly somewhere in the back of my mind. It, it makes me think of like a telephone and kind of like a phone call. You know the way there's something subtly ringtone about the keys in it in a, in a very subtle way. But immediately it, 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 it gets me thinking that the person singing the dialogue, you, is kind of talking down a phone or something. That's my weird personal take on it. Yeah, strange to say all that, really, you know, because, well, I think initially what you're speak, speaking about, you know, just I know you guys would know this and as most of your listeners would, but that, the riffs is what you're talking about. And they're important, as we were saying, you know, that it's very important, like every song, you know, not every song should have a riff, you know, but that even that pure imagination, doom, 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 that's the opening riff to that, you know, but I but all the time in the world actually, you know, in contradiction again sorry about that chaps it's about running out of time and having no time left and uh, the inspiration for that of course is i'm a big james bond fan hence why we're all in the suits and 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 uh, johnny boyle is wearing the, the the tux and all you know um because in in george lazenby who played him in in the in the in the movie called on her majesty's secret service where he got married James Bond did and his wife got shot at the end. Spoiler, it was 1960 <laughs> something, but you know what I mean? If it's a spoiler now, you could beat it. Anyway, um, and that famous song at the end, the Louis, Louis Armstrong, you have all the time in the world, comes from that movie uh, where she gets killed and he says that to her on his lap. As she's but anyway, the inspiration for all the time in the world. Now, it was a difficult song and Donkey would tell you we didn't, it didn't it didn't give birth to it easy. She, she was difficult um, because I couldn't really. It wasn't about smoking, or it wasn't about. I did. I I couldn't really. What is this about? You know. And then I just had this idea of, uh, you know. And I get lots of letters. It's an emotional song. This I get lots of letters and emails from people who, who have gone through children with cancer, right? And they would send me this, and they'd say that's the most inspirational, beautiful sound that, that really, and it really got us through this whole terrible moment in our lives because, you know, there was a time when life had no end and that's how it opens and, and, and no darkness in our days. But for our sins, you walked in and told me this terrible news, you know, and, and now we stare darkness in the face, but we'll always be together. And until then we have all the time in the world. So, Again, you know, that's basically what it's invoking is that um, 
it doesn't really matter how much time you have. I suppose treat every moment like it's all the time in the world, which is, you know, a sentiment that I would have grown into yet later on in life. You know, if, if you if you if you're worried about the future, you're anxious about the past, you're depressed, and the only moment that really matters is the moment you're living in now, which is what all the time in the world is, I suppose. Yeah, that's that, that's uh, that's really that's really that's really t- touching um, for for me anyway, Dave. And just uh, that, you know, cheers for that. That's uh, fascinating insight into the song. Um, well, my next one is, is a bit different. <laughs> than moving swiftly onwards, I, folks. <laughs> yeah, and that segment was brought to you by Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> the, the next one, I, I was I, I was going to change the, it. But, the but thinking I, man's I, not rag. <laughs> I, I, I really like. Uh, love in the streets and yeah i mean again there's a lot of tracks i could have picked as, as my top three but I, I i really like it and one of the reasons i really like it is because i was i was a I, you know i'm a fan was a fan it went and i remember coming on the late late and it was great when you saw the bands that you like coming on the late late show back in the 90s still is of course uh, but it, it's not quite the same as it was because you consume music very differently then you know i think you, you know, you, you you had the album and you liked hearing it on the radio. And then when the band came on the TV, you were really happy to see it. But you had to make a bit of an effort. It couldn't just, it wasn't all instantly available to you. So Gay Byrne, you know, and you didn't know what was coming on. But I remember it very, very clearly um, introducing Picture House. And uh, on you came. It's such a good performance on, uh, that, that you gave. It's on YouTube. People can, can, can check it out. Um, but my memory of that track was how good it sounded live and um you know i just again the chorus is good and you know it's it, it it's a really it's really kind of a put you in good form listening to it you know and um, i don't know dan did you, do you do you agree with me or do you have something else well i have something else you'd be glad to know um <laughs> so the one i picked um is only a friend um i just think um i i think your vocals are incredible in it i think you really get a sense of your range. So you go very, very low in the kind of pre-chorus part of the song. And then the chorus itself goes up to a quite a high register. You can hear, you, you, I, 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 I think your voice sounds incredible in it because you can even hear a little bit of vibrato in your voice towards the end of the song. I think you absolutely nailed it vocally. So that's one of the reasons it, it really shines out to me. Well, I'll answer that one first. And that's... Uh... Well spotted, Dan, because it's an absolute animal of a song to sing. It's like an animal. And as I got older, I was thinking, God, could I actually, like, if I was to come out of two years of COVID sitting at home, the hardest set in the world to sing would be the Picture House set because it's so hard. We really did put everything into it. Um, And Only a Friend, I suppose, is what it says on the tin. There are some of those songs that come along and it's just like, there's only a friend of yours would understand what you're going through now. And it, it was it was all of those Bruce Springsteen songs and Darkness at the Edge of Town and What Would You Do If You Got Out of This One Horse Town? You've heard it in loads of songs, you know, What Would You Do If We Broke it, broke Out of This, you know, Bad Out of Hell, loads of them. And uh, that's, what, that's what Only A Friend really was about, you know, Only A Friend Would Know. And I know you think it just don't show, but Only A Friend Would Know This. or And then the second chorus says, Notice, as in Notice, and Only A Friend Would Know. And then at the end, I just, we wanted to do, you know, when you hide all the things you hide and you find out all the things you find, leave room for light to shine. You know, don't be so hard on yourself and depressed and all of these things will eventually find their own way, which is, you know, again, a bit prophetic to ourselves because we probably did not, didn't believe those things at the time, but weren't aware of them at the time. And like that happens in a lot of our songs, you know, it will put a shiver up your spine. I mean, if you listen to Fear of Flying, for example, building fell to the ground 
glass foundations crashing down, you know, and years later, what happened with airplanes and all that in the song. It's called Fear of Flying and weird instances like that happen all over the place. And so, yeah, that's only a friend is, but, but it's a powerhouse. It's a really strong song and live. It's even more powerful than it is in the record. I mean, I think that was our issue was trying to get that power onto the record, but it's, it's sweet. Um, and, and, you know, it comes from the heart, but it's, it's a bastard to sing and it's really hard. So we don't play it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but here's another trick for all you bands out there. All our picture house gigs are semi-toned down from the record anyway. So, so if we, if, which is also looks very flash when they do, you know, when you get a music book and they write your music out, always get them to write it out a semi-tone down because it's all like B flat diminished seventh instead of C, which is what we play. <laughs> C and F and G, but, and in the case, a nice segue leads me on C, F and G to Love in the Streets, which is C, F and G. Again, a semi-tone down is B. <laughs> it's now in B and it makes, makes us all look very clever. But uh, all it is is just down tune your guitar semi tone and you're, you suddenly become the Beatles. But anyway, Loving the Streets was uh, was in Amsterdam. That's where it came from. Loving the Streets. Literally, we were in Amsterdam. We were sitting in the hotel and obviously, you know, well, it's legal to consume large bammers over there. So I I've, no, I've no worries in saying large bammers were, con- were consumed, you know. But by bammer, I mean uh, big, you know, grass cigarettes. <laughs> for the PGs listening to the podcast. I'm not sure what channel we're going out on. But anyway, um, and I was just looking at the hotel room and I just thought, you know, what a great idea of this guy just sitting there, you know, opens the show, the devil, you know, was kind of like, you're better off staying at home high on the grass in the Lebanese, which is Lebanese is what you used to get at home. So anyway, you sit in the hotel room and he's on his own and, you, and you're thinking, you know, there's love in the streets in, in Amsterdam and surely there should be some love there for me too, which is where the nice twist comes in the tune because it's, 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 it's saying, you know, like it's so in, in, I suppose in the sexual sense or anything like that, when you were in, in, in Amsterdam, it's so easy to do things like that over there, but it's still very difficult to find love. And so this, so, you know, love in the streets is, there's got to be a love there for me because I'm tired of people's broken dream, you know. But but back to what you were saying about, you know, it's just unadulterated crack. I mean, we used to fall around the places laughing at it. And the guy came in to do the trumpet solo. Oh, man, I have to tell you, lads. Myself and Pete sat in the studio. And I, I, I mean, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. I saw his eye. It was just so funny. I don't know. If, and if your listeners are familiar with, you know, you can see with the... He's just playing this stupid tr- a trombone. It was a trombone. Was solo. it Jimmy the Lips Fagan? Was it? <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, Joey the Lips. Oh, Joey the Lips. Oh, yeah. Now it was, a, but it's a trombone, which you know, no disrespect to trombone players around the world, but it is a very funny instrument in that setting to see somebody playing it because it's so ridiculous with the the sliding thing that goes in and out. But anyway, Pete read all the tracks of this guy did about ten takes, and we played them all together. Simultaneously, I think I think I have it on the cassette or something somewhere. Oh man! And what it did was it set the tone for that whole song in the studio because it, we laughed so much at it. And you know, it's a very tongue in and it is like you say, it's not pretending to be anything. It's not, but it does still have that little twist in it. That you know, if all of these things are freely available over here, you know, and I still can't find love, you know, 
<laughs> be a complete loser in contrast to how fun the song is. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, two good, two good picks there, guys. Good picks. Well, the next part of the show um, is sponsored by Visit Amsterdam. And it's where we ask you uh, some random questions, completely at random, to put you under serious pressure. And um, basically just take in the question and give us your first answer. That comes One to word mind. answer. Uh, well, you can. It, we, so this we, is the, so the psychological profilers all around the world now <laughs> <laughs> sharpening the old pencil, saying, exactly. "Hey, let's see what a weirdo this guy is." <laughs> yeah, huh? yeah. No, you can yeah. use as many words. This as is the podcast equivalent of the ink blot thing, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So, how do you feel about pineapple on a pizza? Love it. Yeah. Why? Wouldn't have it all the time, but no problem with it. Used to have it all the time. Ham sweet corn and pineapple. What's your favorite type of guitar? Uh, Telecaster. Telecaster. Why? Tone. Yeah, it's class. I have one sitting behind me here. Love it. Um, if you could pick one movie for the Muppets to do a, a remake of it, what would it be? Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. I, do, I make you laugh. <laughs> Gonzo, Gonzo sitting there with the big shrone on him saying, Why, are you, why I'm funny? You find me funny? I right. a- apart from Picture House, who are your favorite band? Uh, oh, probably um, Crowd House. Good choice. Good choice. Singer, who's your favorite singer? You know, every time I, I'd be sitting there listening to singers and I say, the next time I go on one of these things and somebody asks me, remember, that's the guy you wanted to say. <laughs> remember. Uh, my favorite singer. Um, oh, you have me there. Daniel probably, look, I'm going to be very corny, very corny, very cheesy. I'm probably say Frank. Frank Sinatra. Ah, yeah. You can't go wrong there. Uh, radio or TV? TV. Did... Did radio, did, did, did video really kill the radio star? Um, no. No, okay. Film or plays? Oh, film. Film, yeah. And, 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 and 90s or the 2020s? 90s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened in 2020s? Nothing. No, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. I, I want to... I want to get very serious now here for a second altogether, lads. I, I, I mean, this is a something that's I've heard you speaking about before, Dave, which is the pandemic and music and musicians. And I wanted to ask you, now that we're coming out of it um, for now, uh, what's your thoughts now when you look back just on the two years and just how bands and musicians uh, were treated and, you know, what going from here? What's your feeling about uh, you know bands and musicians and and what's going to happen uh, from from uh, from this point? Well, you see, look, I'll, I'll premise this question by this is just he- how I feel about it. I'm going to answer it from my own perspective. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I really don't care whether people think I'm a money musician or any of that. I, you know, I've heard all, all that crap which went on quite a bit. You know, I'm a musician with money, you know. And that had nothing to do with it. Um, initially, our biggest gripe was that the government had just took our businesses off us and gave us 300 quid or 350 quid and told us to go away. And we, we weren't happy with that because we were businesses and we had turnovers and paid our taxes and all that kind of thing. So from that point of view, it was very difficult to get the government to even understand what a musician does business-wise. 
And this go get a real job thing is a very real. I will tell everybody that it's very real. The go get a real job, actually do it for the crack anyway. It doesn't matter that you spend 30 years learning how to do it. And that is a very real thing. Uh, and I'm not quite sure. Well, you know, I have a kind of a small plan to try and change that moving forward. And it's probably going to take decades. But that was the biggest shame for me that a lot of my colleagues and myself felt very worthless through it all. It didn't because really, you don't really matter. I think Panty Bliss put it brilliantly, actually, who's been interviewed and he said, like, we were just thrown on a scrap heap overnight. And that, you know, we were disposable. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you know, Joe Biden's come to Dublin. They wheel out all the artists and the bands and put on a big show. And that used to piss me off because I was like, God, I wish I, I you know, I wish I could reach out to musicians and say, don't play that. Just don't play that show. Have them, have them arrive to silence and just say, that's what happens when you really rely on people's love for music and, and artists and all that. What really happens are things like Spotify. That's what happens ultimately in the end. And I think that became very poignant and palpable to, to everybody that, that that pandemic hit. Now, again, as I said, I'm just speaking from a musician's point of view. I'm well aware that it hit everybody else as well and all of that. But particularly for us and, and, and my colleagues and the people I was dealing with anyway, um, what kept us going was our interaction with government departments and with the arts department and trying to, you know, um, really make those people understand the value we had from in a monetary sense, you know, and it's to us, it was simple. I mean, if it says musician and, uh, you know, on your revenue, on your form 11 and you pay your tax, then you're a feckin' musician and that's how much you earn and you should be treated that way. That's on a monetary level. Now on another level, you would have lots of, and especially in the, in the wedding industry, you know, you had lots of, now you had, Lots of people didn't too, but you had lots of people like, you know, oh, I want, you know, I want me money back. And, the, you know, it was all this kind of thing that went on. And the musicians came under a lot of fire from, from all angles. And we, we had very little friends. That's how we felt. Um, that's how I felt anyway. Media were quite good to us. They were they were OK. We did get a lot of airtime. We realized a lot about politics, about, you know, if you don't get on the radio and you don't get on the telly and you don't, you know, and. And not embarrass them, but make them make politicians aware of what a situation is and that people are talking about it. They won't react to it at all. Yeah. At all. Yeah. And that's our fault. So that's what I'll come to about the future part. And, um, you know, I, um, working very hard to put together a, a new organization called Kellair. And, and what that's about is just trying to get all the stakeholders, you know, like the beef industry has a representative body, the film board, you know, board be it, fish have a better representative body than musicians do and the music the music business in ireland the entertainment business and our export business of our all of our music is worth you know billions we can, we punch very much above our weight and i had a very interesting chat with a couple of you know very you know well positioned people in the business recently and they said you know the, the failure rate for irish bands is incredibly high which i think is an awful shame so what we're trying to do is we're trying to create an industry in ireland in which musicians can get played, get paid, you know, not get ripped off by Spotify, be able to make records, be able to survive to make another record, which is really all they want to do. Earlier on in the podcast, we were saying about, don't worry about getting paid and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you have to pay your bills, but if a band can survive to pay themselves a living wage, you know, look after their families and afford to make another album, a lot of bands would be happy with that. You'd be, you'd be amazed, you know, oh, I didn't make Wembley Arena. Grand. But you're still, you can still sell 10,000 albums in a year. 
get seven quid a copy and off you go mm. and then go and do your gigs and have the fans coming and have a great little art thing going on. I mean, how fabulous would that be? And that's not possible in Ireland. And we need to fix that. We need to fix it on a governmental legislative level. So that's the answer to that question. In a nutshell. Big time. I'm really uh, excited to hear about that project because, um, you know, like obviously we, when we started this podcast, we started it because of our love for music and we started it during the pandemic. And, um, and we really felt that the album as a kind of an art form was was kind of not disappearing because it's still incredible albums being released, but weren't what they weren't given the kind of focus and attention that they deserve. And I think we have to look, I think you're hundred percent right. We have to look at music as a as an art form. And Ireland should be the, you know, the country of saints and scholars and musicians crack, fit crack in. Crack August Kill. Crack you know? August Kill, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we need to have a vibrant August Soul. August Soul, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we do need to have a vibrant <laughs> cultural industry, you know. And I, I think you've outlined, uh, you've outlined a, a model for yeah. musicians to live comfortably, uh, relatively comfortably, you know, and and and, and invest. Well, in Dan, that's art. what I would do. I would just, I and I would implore. And now there are a lot of people that are getting behind us and supporting us in the industry. And I would just implore anybody out there to come and join us because basically that's all we're looking for at the moment is support for the idea. That's all I want. Just to get everybody on the same page, the promoters, the record labels, you know, anybody that's involved in the industry here, musicians themselves, come and join us. And just, if you believe in this idea, just come and join us and we'll worry about the rest afterwards. You know what I mean? This is the thing the political, what you stand for? What's your agenda? I have all that done. That's all there. The agendas are great and all. Great. But just, do you think it's a good idea? Are yes. You great? Well, then just come and join us then. And we'll worry about the rest afterwards. But if we're all on the same page, now we can start talking to each other and becoming a think tank, you know, and becoming yeah. a, a place where even you know, I, things can be resolved and issues I, can be dealt with. I, I love it. I love it, Dave. And you definitely I speak for myself and Dan here to say that absolutely we that for, for absolutely support that 100 percent. And hopefully we can we can we can champion it and be a voice for it because it's absolutely needed. And I like the what you're saying there, the openness of the invitation. Let's do it. Let's agree on the idea and take it forward. And I absolutely agree with you, by the way, the point you're making. Yeah, you have to kick up a big fuss as well to get yeah. anything done. And this moral p- appeals and, and paying the people's better wills, you gotta kick up a huge fuss. You do. And and it is, it is the way it's 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 the way it's done. It's the way that you know, but the, and the, the point about it is as well, without I mean Dan is the is the is the musician of the operation here. I, I but but I I love you know, you talk about the money thing and sometimes we get a little bit uncomfortable at talking about money. It's as if, oh, Jesus, you know, should we talk? Money's fine for everybody else, but not for musicians and artists, you know. But one of the things about tourists that you notice, you know, this thing about coming to Dublin, they're not coming to see the hotels. One of the things people come to Dublin for and the things they've always liked, it seems to me now, this, I don't I haven't seen any research on this now, but they just, they like the music in the pubs, which is yeah. a bit of a, it, you know, it, it's a kind of a uniquely brilliant thing. I mean, you can go down to somewhere like the Porterhouse in Temple Bar, any night of the week and see a deadly uh, musician. I mean, great, you know, really good stuff all over the place, like, yeah, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, so there is an economic argument, but there's also the argument as well is, is there anything more important in your life than the artistic expression? The way I've come to look at it, Dave, is, is like this, that for me, artists and bands and groups and singers, 
through their songs, they express the emotions that ordinary people, for want of a better world, are feeling, Absolutely. but have no way to express. And then you become our voice and you become our way of expressing things. That's the. So, I mean, that's, I just think that's so important. I mean, is, well, there, I, is there anything more important than that? Well, you're dead right. That's what you set out to do when you write a song fundamentally is how does it relate to me and then how, how will it relate to everybody else and sometimes you don't care and you'd be surprised that sometimes the songs that you write that you don't care whether it connects to anybody or not connects with them you know massively so i agree with you completely you know and, and i do think every every songwriter understands that responsibility and i think even as i say some song ideas can relate to people's perception of them completely differently and and if I think songs are like like smells, you know, like smells when you smell something when you were your kid and you go, oh, I remember that? That was Wexford. That was a, that shop we used to get them jazz. And I think if you, you can hear a song like and you remember that part of your life, some people, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's the soundtrack to my life. The music was, you know, you hear that a lot. And um, yeah, so I agree with you. There, I, what is better than that? I don't know. I mean, it's slightly biased to ask me that. <laughs> I'm sure the butchers are going eating steak. That's the most important thing. Minced lamb. What are you on about? Songs, songs. You know. But um, so yeah. But I agree, and 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 I think that goes back to what I was saying to you about. That. I, I, you know, we did feel that everybody forgot that rather quickly. Now, yeah. everybody was going through their own issues, but there were a lot of people, that, you know that weren't from a financial standpoint anyway. So I suppose everybody had to deal with that, that the same way, but it was very difficult. I would, I would put it to any musician to not have felt that. Yeah. That's, that's a big thing. Dave, just to bring it back to the music for a moment. And um, before we finish up, you've had um, evolution, you've had a, the, the, the greatest hits you've had 1999 and um, the live, the live album. And um, what's next in terms of the music just before we do that, there's one thing I wanted to say to you is about you and I, um, mm. that you and I has a sister song. I don't know if any other bands have ever said that to you, um, which is, well, I gave up smoking and I opened the Madness, Sadness, Gladness album with a song called Breathe. And now I can breathe without you. I don't have this snake climbing, uh, coming through the weed is one of the words. Uh, and now, now I find it easy to, easy to breathe, you know. So um, I just thought it was an interesting point, you know, yeah. that that just happened to come. And I didn't realize that afterwards. I was like, that's feckin'. Yeah. And again, I suppose I was just going back to something that related to me and how I could write a song about it. But it's an, an interesting point anyway. You and I opens one album and Breathe opens the next one, which was after it, you know. Yeah. Um, but so what's next for us? Um, we're making a documentary. That's what's next. Called uh, I'm Gonna Be Up There With Him Someday. That's what it's called. Because my mother took me to see Meatloaf in Daily Mount Park in 1981, and I'd learned the whole Meatloaf album backwards. And I, and I grabbed her by the hand and I said, Mom, Mom, I, I'm going to be up there with him someday. I'm not going to be up there, because as I told you earlier on, I always knew I was going to be up there anyway, one way or the other. But I said, I'm going to be up there with him. And then to end up at Wembley Arena singing with him on a stool, a high stool, looking over like, hi, meat, you know that. <laughs> you know that bullshit face and they're grabbing each other by the shoulders and swaying side to side that musicians do doing that shit it's kind of like you know it's one of those moments when you your own your own inner voice says fucking hell brown you really pulled that one off you know you're saying to yourself that mostly happens in the negative is like how the hell did i end up here there's no yeah. me, what you would say but uh, 
yeah, so that's what that's going to be about. And um, we'll see where it goes from there. Brilliant. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Big Album Show. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's been absolutely brilliant. That's um, great. Listen, thanks for having us on, guys. You know, it's because it's, it's, it's nice to be to, to have the album remembered and to talk about it. It's always a pleasure, you know. Brilliant. Cheers, Dave. So for myself and Dan, thanks again for listening, everybody. And remember to make sure to follow us at The Big Album Show. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share it. We'd really appreciate that. And give us a little rating and make sure to follow us from wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Big Album Show with Paul and Dan. Please remember to subscribe, hit like, and remember to follow us on our social media platforms at The Big Album Show. (laughs) 